You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel for episode 109. Multiple people from Yanua country in northern Australia's Gulf of Carpinteria are going to talk about their new book, Jakarta Wuka, Too Many Stories. And this is an amazing book, collaboration with their direct people that are responsible for this rock art in Australia. This is going to be a wild ride. Can't miss this one, gang. But welcome out there in uh, the Rock Art Podcast and Archaeology Podcast land. Get uh, ready for a rip-roaring fun. We'll have an, an hour to discuss a bit of Australian rock art, which we've never done, with uh, several remarkable people who have been doing tremendous research in Australia, working directly with Native people, and have recently published a book on their work. And... Uh, we will see how this goes. This is the first time we've done so many multiple people all at once, but it's going to be remarkable. So who's going to start the show here and talk about your research? Look, I'm happy to start it off. This is Liam. I'm an archaeologist here at Flinders University. Um, I'm originally from Canada. So Liam, you you are uh, part of a extensive collaboration working with Native Australians on rock art, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I started working with Indigenous Australian communities in 2001 for my PhD and I started working in the Torres Strait Islands, which is just off the tip of Cape York Peninsula in between Cape York and Papua New Guinea. And I started working out there with uh, with Islander communities, recording rock art for my PhD, bouncing around in boats and camping on tropical islands was, uh, was a great way to, to explore the country for my first time. And then after that, I uh, moved out to the University of Western Australia, where I began some rock art recording projects in the Pilbara region, which is the iron ore capital of Australia, and recording some amazing engraving sites out there. 
And then in 2010, John and Amanda and the Yanua community invited me to, to begin working with them to, to record rock art sites, to make an inventory so that the, um, that the Sea Rangers, the Aboriginal Ranger group, can manage these sites into the future and record all the, that information and have it available for, for future generations. Tell our audience specifically how remarkable and different Australian rock art is from probably rock art in the rest of the world. Well, I think Australian rock art is very distinctive because there are over 100,000 known sites across the continent and there's more and more being discovered every year. Uh, you know, we could go into Western Australia, into, um, into the Dampier area, Murujuga, which is um, on right. the World Heritage List now. You know, that site alone has over a million engravings in one small area. So rock art is extraordinary here. So many different styles. It goes back um, you know, over 20,000 years, lots of chronologies, and it's, it's a field in itself. There's 12 to 15 key rock art researchers. So it's a very, very rich record, very diverse record. But the, the real specialty is the native people who crafted that are still with you. Are they uh, still actively engaged in protecting and creating such records? Certainly, yeah. There are records of people creating rock art still in Western Arnhem Land. I saw rock art being created in uh, 2001, 2002 in Torres Strait. And so there's a lot of information that Indigenous people hold about their, about their rock art and the stories that it tells. You know, we're really quite fortunate to be able to work with um, Indigenous communities recording that knowledge and learning about these, these sites, these images. And just, you know, they are very complex things. It's not just a case of, Here's a painting of a dugong, but there's a whole layered story associated with that one particular motif. And this is what we get into in the book. So you have a book that just came out, and this book is different, unique, distinctive, because of what characteristics, please? John, do you want to take that one? This book is based basically on, well, we could say 43 years of work. I first went into the Gulf country where Yanua people live, who the book is written with. Yanua families, Yanua communities. I went there 43 years ago, began traveling through Yanua country, was seeing rock art. Now, I'm an anthropologist and a linguist. I'd begun to learn Yanua as the language in that area, and I was really interested as to how people were talking about rock art because they were not talking about rock art as something that was created by their ancestors as human ancestors. They were talking about rock art in a very, very different way. Yanua actually doesn't even have a word that means art. There's words for marking, there's words for making a design, but rock art actually is all about the actions of ancestral beings in Yanua country at least. So you don't get anywhere very quickly if you start talking about rock art as being created by human beings. So what this book tries to do, what Amanda and Liam and I have tried to do in this book with Yanua families is to explore beyond the notion of rock art. And in fact, we say that this in the end is not a book about rock art. This is a book about a deep ontological and epistemological reckoning of what all these designs in the rock shelters over Yanua country on the islands, because it's all on island country, how they're being interpreted on a day-to-day -day basis within the last 40-odd years, given my time experience and knowledge of the language, so that, you know, in the end, you're not asking questions. I could listen to old people just talk about it and gradually build up 
an idea of what was going on. Then I met Amanda. Then I met Liam. And together we decided there was a research project here that perhaps was different than anything else in the world that had ever been done. So, John, this is directly from the Indigenous perspective as to the creators of the art and also what it means and how it functions, I would presume. That's exactly right. So we're relying very much on the voices of the Yanua people that we worked with. So really, we're writing a commentary to that. Liam, of course, can set it within the bigger parameters of rock art within the world, within Australia. Amanda and my job as anthropologists is then saying, okay, that's very well, but where does this idea of rock art that's not really rock art then sit within that ontological and epistemological premise that we are dealing with? Gotcha. Amanda, tell us a little bit about your interaction. Well, I, uh, as John mentioned, so I'm an anthropologist as well, and John was actually my PhD supervisor, and he was the person who introduced me to Yanua country and working with Yanua families up in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And over the course of time, you know, you, John, Liam and I had sort of been up in this region working together, and it's this whole research program we've done working with Yanua has really been, for me, led by a deep interest in Indigenous knowledges and how Indigenous people bring their world into sort of actuality. So, you know, rock art is one part of that world, but my work in general has been sort of exploring a whole range of aspects of, of Yanua life. And I was very lucky in the beginning to be introduced to a group of senior women in the community. And and what's always been nice with our research projects is that we have this balance of men and women working together and we work with men and women and also different generational groups within the context of the Yanua community because everybody has a positionality and everybody has a, a kind of relationship to the thing we call rock art, but which is really an expression of ancestors and old people in Yanua country. So really from my perspective, what's been so enriching as an anthropologist with this project is that the very conversation of rock art uh, originated out from how Yanua understand these presences in their land and sea country. So it's about being led by Yanua into a conversation about country and about rock art. And the benefit of this project and really what has made it so unique all along is the time depth of the insights and the oral traditions and the recordings that we have, partly because of John's very long-term presence there. I arrive in context about 24 years ago, which is at a time where life is different in the community. Things are changing. That's the dynamic nature of any community. They're always in a state of change and growth and creative reinvention. And so turning up for this project in around 2010, I think it was, we started our first journeys up there as a research team working with families and and seeing what is the story for rock art in this present moment, but knowing that that story has a, a, a deep time. It has its own big, long story going way back to the beginning when John was there, but also to the very beginning when you have the dreaming and the ancestral beings that created it. So this project has a relationship to time that I think is really unique in that we aren't attempting to say, you know, rock art is some sort of tradition that is no longer because rock art, the thing we call rock art, is always in country and always will be as long as there are Yanua people in a relationship to it. And, and Amanda, I, I think 
you have a real special voice or a special perspective to share with those in the States here, the United States, in that you have a living and vital, almost a sentient tradition mm. that can be shared with others and provide uh, an indigenous voice to this resource we call rock art. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is what drew me to anthropology in the very beginning was the fact that it is a discipline and a practice like archaeology, so populated by people who have a voice and who have a story and a position and a relationship to speak of. So really, I, I think you're absolutely right in that what has made this project so much richer and and rewarding as archaeologists and anthropologists is that the whole way along we've had Yanua people there telling us what we should do, what we shouldn't do, where we can go, what we can record and what is the meaning of what we are recording. So I I think all of us feel an acute, you know, a profound debt of gratitude to Yanua families for teaching us about the complexity of rock art, that it is more than paintings on a surface. It is so much more. And that that's that's I think we felt compelled to tell that that's story. A, that's through a the key takeaway, isn't it? Amanda? And to open up, yeah, yes. yeah, it really yeah. is. It really is that. Let me jump back to John. Mm. John, it sounds like you've been involved in this for many decades and have a long history of association. How did you get involved with Yanua Rock Art, and why is this uh, project have such a uh, long genealogy? Well, I first arrived into that community, which is, well, Yanua country is a thousand kilometers southeast of Darwin, the capital city of the Northern Territory. I first arrived in there as actually a primary school teacher, teaching in that community where I got to know the parents, of course, of all the Yanua children that I was teaching at the time. Bit by bit, as I got to know families, they would invite me out onto country. I was also the first white man that ever went into that community that wanted to learn the language. So I was a bit of an oddity in some regards. And as I began to learn language, like any language learning, you begin to see another way of thinking about what's in front of you. And, you know, in the years I was a teacher there, I was taken out onto country. I was always fascinated with this other view that was being presented to me, constantly being presented to me. And I began to document even then what was happening and taking photographs and trying to make my own record, albeit perhaps at the time somewhat clumsy. But it was that record that really when I showed Liam back in when he was working at Monash, went, wow, what can we do with this? Then, of course, I, you know, I did my doctorate and did my doctorate in anthropology in Yanua country, looking at sea country and marine turtle and dugong in particular. Since then, I've written the grammar and the dictionary of that language. It is unfortunately a language now that only has three or four speakers left. It's an incredibly unique language in that it has distinct dialects for men and women. And I just have to say, I was just, and I still am, fascinated by the whole process of what an engagement with a language other than English that belongs to Australia. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It belongs on that country. It knows how to speak to that country. It knows how to speak to the things that are in that country, that it actually begins to reveal completely different ways of how we might think 
and how we might order this thing that in the West we might just call the environment or an ecology or this thing called rock art. And from my perspective, what we end up with is really understanding with the rock art embedded in country, a geography of animacy where you cannot move without understanding that even things in the West that we don't think are animated are actually animate. And as Amanda rightly said, you know, there are rules about how you respond to this animated landscape. There are rules about sometimes how you enter it. And I suppose what's really unique in this book is that there are some things there that perhaps 20 years ago would never have been allowed in that book. But as younger people are seeing old people die, knowledge might disappear as well. You've got a younger generation of people who are saying, well, maybe we've got to change the rules a bit. And there are two men in particular who are acknowledged in that book, and that's Graham Friday and Leonard Norman, two Yanua senior men, who, in consultation with families, allowed us to actually publish images of rock art in Yanua country that, as I said, 20 years ago would never have been allowed to be published. And as Amanda rightly said, all things change. Communities change the way the community sees things change. Let's stop it right there and pick it up in the next segment. Thanks, uh, John and Amanda, Liam. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everybody, in the uh, rock art podcast world. We're continuing with Liam, Amanda, and John talking about the rock art in Australia and, and what it means. The word rock art is tossed about here in the States all the time. Uh, Amanda, rock art's not really the best word to use for this database. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it was interesting that when you're working with Indigenous groups who say to you, you know, a painting is not a painting, when people are not themselves using the word rock art to describe this thing that as anthropologists and archaeologists we have come to know as rock art, you find yourself sort of going, okay, I feel like I'm trying to put a square peg in a round hole by talking about rock art all the time. And and I think one of our biggest commitments on this project has, has been to be led by Yanua knowledge and Yanua perspectives and Yanua language. Like John has really emphasised the importance of the language to understanding this context in, in the world. What do the Indigenous people call the paintings? Well, they can be a whole lot of things. They can be old people, they can be dreaming, they can be uh, an indication of the health and well-being of the, the land and sea country that we're visiting. People never really settle on that word rock art because country is very alive and very active. How do they perceive the images? Are they sentient? Are they alive? Are they fashioned by supernatural beings? Help us. 
Well, supernatural is a bit of a funny word to use there, but it would certainly be, and I'll get John and Liam to also respond to this as well, but from my perspective, the idea is that country and the land and sea is alive and it's full of presences. These can be the presence of ancestral beings. They might be the presence of deceased kin who are moving through their land and sea country. So nothing is is as we in the West might necessarily understand it. So if everything has a kind of agency and the capacity to be present and in country, then what we are seeing on rock surfaces could be created by the spirit beings, the ancestors, what people often refer to more generally as dreaming ancestors, or they could be the presence and reminders of old people and kin who have passed away, but who are still making up uh, part of country. So for example, you know, we've had instances where it became very well known that we were a group that were always and forever talking about and looking for paintings and rock art. So people would sort of see that as as, as I guess that we had a keenness and a desire to see rock paintings. And on occasions, you know, we would go to uh, do surveys and we would be on periods of time where we were camping out on country and, you know, we'd be looking and looking. And then, for example, on one occasion, we found two of the freshest handprints that we had ever recorded in this context. And these were extremely vibrant red ochre handprints on one particular rock surface. And when we returned back to the community that that evening uh, to talk to people about this, and I'm going to hand over to John because John is the one who often has these conversations in language. John, do you want to recall the conversation about the super fresh handprints that we found? Sure. Okay. So the day before we made this trip to where these rock art prints were found. It's a a country. Now, let me just preface this. Yanua country has over 2,000 place names over its area. So location of place, if you know the place names, is very easily understood and that every place name actually has its own biography. So we had organized with a a group of traditional owners of Yanua men and women to go to a place called Liwanginya, As soon as you say the name Liwinginya, people look a little concerned. It's a place where it's felt that the spirits of the old people are very present. It's a place, therefore, where you have to be very careful. So the night before we made the trip, and we made the trip by helicopter, there was a lot of talk about this place called Liwinginya. There's a lot of ceremonial knowledge associated with this place called Liwinginya. And we were sitting with a very old woman, one of the last really key knowledge holders of that country and her cousin who was going to travel with us. And in that process, songs were sung, discussions were talked about this place called Liwanginya. So we then traveled to Liwanginya. As Amanda said, we find these handprints that are just so vibrant. They are so rich in color. And people were absolutely amazed by them. Photographs were taken. We went back to the community that evening and we sat down and talked about it. Of course, Liam could show photos of the prints because Liam was always, because of his knowledge, the photographer of all these sites. And the decision that was made and the conversation around those handprints was about that the country and the old people were so happy that we had remembered them, 
that they had put those prints there just before we had arrived to demonstrate the happiness, that they were revealing the happiness of that country to us to be remembered, to be re-presenced, and that those handprints weren't at all old at all. They were a phenomena from the day before or even the evening before. And this is not unusual. This is just part of the conversation about this presencing in country and how you must approach country. So there's other sites that are actually the in, which are what we might call humanoid in form. They look human and people will say, well, they're actually not art. That's actually the bodies of the ancestors that have placed themselves into the rock. And they're addressed as kin. People talk to them. People interact with them. And this was the process through the whole journey that we made over these 10 years. I suppose for myself, it didn't strike me as unusual because that's the kind of thing that I'd learnt to expect over all the years I'd moved through that country. But I think, as Amanda rightly said, those handprints more than anything demonstrated this constant engagement with country. And while people are still in country in 20, 30, 40 years' time, it will always be engaged with perhaps in ways that will surprise archaeologists, that will surprise anthropologists, and will surprise anyone that doesn't know, if you like, a Yanyo way of thinking. So, so by way of interpretation, it seems as though the, the people, the Australian, the indigenous, have a uh, centrally important aspect, and that is the focus on people and their ancestors. Am I correct or incorrect? Absolutely correct, Alan. Yeah. I mean, but it's those ancestors may not always be human as well. And that's, yeah. That's, that's right. They could be people, they could be animal people, or they can be some sort of spiritual people, but they're ancestral nonetheless. Exactly. And even the ancestral linkages in a place, like in working in Yanua country, we, we refer to it based on what Yanua teach us as a kincentric ecology. This is an ecology and a life world that is defined and determined by relationships and connection. So that that is sort of the overarching premise for understanding everything in a Yanua, in a Yanua context. And the rock art becomes one part of that. Yeah. So illuminate me. You alluded to the fact that you have to understand relationships and ecology and interactions the uh, the way the tether that occurs here help me understand that just even superficially well look i think that everything is in relationship so everyone that is as humans are connected through kinship but that every person is embedded in the annual world through relationships to non-human presences as well and that can include non-human animals the elements weather phenomena anything of the sorts that because it's a world that is mapped by kinship and relationships everything is in relation so it's really not a system that operates on an on an individual kind of logic like we might have in a Western context. It's rather one of hyper-connectivity. And so a person can be in a relationship of a deep and abiding 
sort of familial nature with everything in their Yanyua world. And that gets reflected in the language, that's reflected in uh, day-to-day life, it's reflected in the way people organise their housing and their uh, raising of children, how they might plan to travel across their land and sea country on any given day as well. So, I mean, relationships, and this is something maybe Liam would might like to speak to yeah. about. Yeah, those, these relationships, we have to understand them and practice them as well in, in order to do the research. Explain that to me, please. What do you have to do to best understand and appreciate and access this cognitive map of the universe? Liam? Uh, well, that's a tricky one. Yeah, it's um, it's just about those relationships and developing them and, and nurturing them. And, you know, from my perspective, coming from archaeology is that, you know, it's it's sitting down and, and working with John and Amanda to listen with the annual men and women that take us out there. Give me a concrete example so I can sort of wrap my mind around this. You're going to a particular site. You've got uh, a native person with you. What is it that you have to understand or know or access to better appreciate what you're going to do? Well, first, it's just a matter of listening, of being able listening, to listen there quietly. You. Of quietly and just just listening to what people have to say, the way that people act and react and and people's emotions with being at at particular places. There's places that we've been to where people are openly excited and happy to be here because they have good memories, whereas there's other places that evoke sadness or fear. So there's all these different emotional responses that you can that you can watch, you can learn about, and it gives you another understanding of you know rock art isn't just about identifying a picture on a rock surface there are so many other dimensions associated with that we cover in this book to show that there are other ways of knowing and seeing rock art so you know a lot of times archaeologists go in with just to focus on you know what is the meaning of a, of a motif how old is it and those sorts of questions but when you bring in the anthropology the ethnography the relationships with traditional owners you can start to see a whole other world about rock art and I think that's why this book stands out for us as being something very, very different. You know, these relationships that we have are are deep, they're complex, and it shows that rock art is so is not a very simple thing to look at. It's layered in so many different ways. There's so many different angles to approach it with, and it all starts with relationships with the traditional owners. Liam, give me an example of one of the sites that you discovered this multi-layered emotionality and connections and explain it, how you came to better understand these images, what the significance of the site was, how it's best to uh, appreciate and understand it. Okay. So my first time into the Gulf of Carpentaria happened in April, 2010. We arrived out there just after a cyclone had been through super hot, super humid, camping out on Southwest Island with uh, a lot of senior men and women. One of the senior women, Dinah Norman, asked us to go and record a rock shelter that she remembered camping at when she was a young girl, so probably sometime in the 1950s. And so she she wanted us to go out there and record a painting of a donkey that she remembers seeing. Now, donkeys were really interesting because they were introduced, introduced species, so they reflected contact with Europeans. So we went out to the site, went out there with a lot of young kids, and we scoured the site. We looked everywhere for it. There were other paintings that were that were there, but... We could not see it. And it was really disappointing from my point of view. But at the same time, I was thinking in my head, oh, maybe this is because it's in a coastal area. So it faded away because there's so much rain and wind. And that was, you know, me looking at it through this this Western lens, this Western science lens. And then you go back to to the campsite and, and John is there talking to, to the women about it. 
And the explanation for it had nothing to do with, with Western science. It had nothing to do with micro-erosion or granular disintegration or anything like that. Donna said that it was because it was taken away by the spirits of, of deceased kin. It was taken away by the ancestors. They actually took that painting away because they were sad. They were sad that nobody was out visiting country anymore. The spirits were sad because people were dying in, in the Yanua community back in Borlula. So it was it was a response. It was a reaction. And the, the spirits, the Liwangala, um, they took that painting away. And so it was a sad sort of situation. But at the same time, the example that Amanda was talking about with those fresh handprints, those fresh hand stencils, paintings could be made again when things were, were in, in good situations, when people were happy, when things when people were back out on the country. So, you know, those relationships between the paintings, the Yanua men and women and us is, is this really interesting network, this interconnected world of, of meaning and understanding. And so as an archaeologist, that, that completely threw me. It wasn't what I expected. And it really forced me to, to rethink and to, to challenge the way that I've come to know and understand rock art. And I think that's why this book is really important for archaeologists, because it shows how important collaboration is with, with anthropologists, with linguists, with traditional owners, and the depths that you can go to, to try and understand the complexity of this rock art. Fantastic. John, why don't you bring in your own perspective on this from an historical standpoint? Well, both Amanda and Liam have picked up on really important points, and I sort of want to take it a bit deeper. You cannot, and Amanda touched on this with kincentrism, the whole notion of being kincentric. But we have to understand in Yanua country, kincentrism also means politics. And I mean sometimes really heavy politics between families and between understandings of what is present in country. So all our fieldwork was predicated also by understanding the politics in country of how kin organize themselves politically. So, for example, in a Yanua way of thinking, you can relate to any area of country through four ways. One is through your father, through paternal descent. One is through your mother. One is through your mother's mother or your mother's mother's brother. And another is through your father's <laughs> mother or your father's mother's brother. <laughs> Why don't we hold that for the next section and we will dig deeper into the kin-centric nature of the rock art. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Everybody out here, here's the third segment of our Australian rock art journey and the, the party we're having talking about the deep dive into our understanding of Australian rock art with John, Liam, and Amanda in a, in a way that uh, probably none of us have really experienced it. John, you were getting into the kin-centric elements of trying to understand this Australian rock art from the perspective of the natives who crafted it. Am I correct? Yeah, and what I'm trying to say is that it's inherently political. You don't move out into Yanua country unless you understand the politics of how people through time, through to the present, actually organize themselves on that country. Entry into Yanua country is not a free-for-all. You have to understand who you have with you, what their relationships to that country are, and that's why, you know, Amanda brought up this idea of kincentrism, but the specifics of that kincentrism are based on basically an understanding 
of your descent line in relation to any one country. And as I said, either through your father, through your mother, through your mother's mother, or through your father's mother. And each one of those particular aspects of kinship will determine your relationship to that country, what you can actually say about that country, or what permissions you need to be able to talk about that country. So, for example, we went into a, a very big site on Southwest Island. Amanda was not allowed to travel into that site because it was a restricted men's only place because of certain ceremonial objects that were present there. This wasn't seen by Amanda as something bad. Women, senior women with Amanda had explained to her that, you know, they couldn't even enter into this place. This is the rules. This is what we would call the law. So when we entered into that place, the people who called that country their mother had to lead the way because basically they are the guardians for their mother's country. They have to clear the access and the people who call that country their own through paternal links follow behind because they don't have the authority to clear access into these really restricted places. So when we went in there, it was the people who called that country their mother's country that directed Liam as to what he could take, how he could take it, how close he could approach the rock art, what he couldn't take. Then afterwards, the conversation was about, are we allowed to use these photographs publicly or have to, do they enter into a restricted file? For me, because I was so familiar with this place, the surprise for me is that in a modern sense, because of the critical component of wanting young people to know, wanting to engage in a contemporary event on country, these senior men actually then said, you can publish these photos in your book as long as you give no actual clear reference to where they're actually located. So we were constantly involved, no matter where we went on Yanua country, we were constantly involved with this idea of politics and who could speak for what and how. Liam and Amanda and I went to one place where the person who called that country their mother was quite ill, but he gave his permission to say, you can still go there. I give you my permission to actually travel to that country to do what you need to do. And this was a constant, the constant negotiation of who we needed to have with us while we recorded what was in that country. And I might just add on there, John, as well, this was really a key part of what I was observing in the project. I was really interested in the in also young people's relationship to the rock art. So every one of our field trips, whether it was for just a day trip or if it was going to be for camping out for a week, we always had young kids with us in the company of their parents and grandparents. And that was a real point of, of commitment for people in the annual community was that young people would come along and join us. So it might be young kids, you know, under the age of 13 or something who would travel around with us, often helping Liam with his camera work and actively involved in the recording process, which was fantastic. And then also when I say young people, I mean people who are sort of just not quite mid-generation, so perhaps in their 30s, and they would also come along and actively join us in the process of being on country, recording rock art and developing an understanding of this project. And it was really important to observe and to 
be cognizant of the fact that sometimes for those people who were a bit younger, it was perhaps the first time they were visiting these parts of their country and it was the first time they were perhaps even seeing these impressions and these uh, markings on rock that were being made by their ancestors. And the emotional responses that came out in some of those experiences were really quite significant in that sometimes younger people were nervous that they hadn't seen these places, they, they didn't feel they had enough of a political understanding of them to be there and that may induce some feelings of being nervous and a bit anxious about that country or the old people might be a little bit upset with them and it might, you know, cause them harm. And so it was a process of what this project also facilitated was people having sometimes the first opportunity to start building these relationships with country in this kind of way through this thing we called rock art. And that begins often a, a lifelong journey of being in a in a deeper relationship with their country, their ancestors, and their lore as it maps onto country as well. So really that, w- that we were so fortunate to be in the company of very senior people with profound knowledge and understanding of this Yanua world, but then also being in the company of people who are just building their relationship and are in the process of growing their understanding and knowledge of law and country. Fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. It was great. When we, when we talk about the uh, individuals that actually created, painted, you know, produced the images, were there specialists? Were they uh, individuals who had to have certain training? Was there a class of individuals? Were they gendered, etc.? Well, that's the really tricky thing: is the fact that uh, <laughs> none of these images, none of the rock art on Yanua country, is said to have been made by people. It was made there by you go. dreaming. Thank you. It, it was made by dreamings. It <laughs> was made, made by, by dreamers, by spirits right? of deceased kin, and it was made by spirits that inhabit country. So, yeah, it's yeah. How could you be so silly, you anthropologist, archaeologist? Exactly. These, are, these aren't made by people. <laughs> these are made by the. Uh, by the uh, spirit world. And so why would you ask such a silly question? <laughs> exactly. exactly. And, it, and it, look, it's a bit, it's a confronting thing as well for people that have been trained in Western science and archaeological science to all of a sudden look at, at, at something like rock art and, and realize that there's a whole other story attached to it. And the way that you've been trained all of a sudden gets turned on its head. And that, that's for us is, is something that's really interesting. And we write about that in the book as well. And I, I actually love that this was a this was a real you know it challenge for us as as academics. We published a piece in American Anthropologist, and I remember we we were sort of we kept defaulting to using the word rock art, and we were sort of like, no, we've got to shake out of this way of thinking. That's not the word. That's not what people are telling us. And we had to kind of fracture our habit and realize, no, we've got to tell this story differently. We've got to tell this story in a way that really stands and holds true to the Yanua voice that has led the project. And, and that has been, I would, I think for all of us, that's a career-long commitment. It's not just in the form of this book. It's in the form of all of our research as we move forward. I just want to build on what Amanda's saying there, is that there is also you can still tell an archaeological story about this. You can still, you know, do classification of motifs. You can still try and find stylistic boundaries and, and different things like that. So in that sense, the archaeology can also sit alongside that Yanua knowledge. It's it's something that, you know, we, we can still sort of explore. And we've done that in an archaeological sense, but all, all the time recognizing that it's just a, another way of, of knowing and seeing this Yanua rock art. Yeah, and if I can come in there, and I think the big overarching message of all of that 
is that we often use these terms, indigenous knowledge or indigenous ways of knowing. And when you confront just even just what we're calling rock art here, let alone anything else that might be in Yanua country, what we're really dealing with are deep philosophies of being in a place that is called home by those people. These are philosophical ways of knowing. And I'm fascinated with it because these philosophical ways of knowing just cut the joints of so much of what in the academy or just Western knowledge more generally can't exist in Yanua country properly. That what we might consider a binary is no longer a binary. The binary makes no sense at all. So in other words, John, our Cartesian uh, Western science, the, w- the way in which we cut, cut and shape the world doesn't fit as a paradigm or model to understand and appreciate the indigenous knowledge of Australian rock art that you have seen and experienced, correct? Well, for Yanua country, absolutely. And I think we do a great disservice when we try and make Western ways of knowing fit into that. And that point by Amanda then is so important as recorders, as writers, as academics, do we dare push the boundary far enough to say, you know what, guys, we can't go there because we would then be misrepresenting a whole philosophical system that we have become privileged to know. And this is a challenge across the board in universities about how then does Indigenous knowledges even come into the academy and be allowed to be what they need to be without some default method of, say, only taking the bits that we want. And it's an ongoing conversation, really. It, it is. We, we are dealing with that actively even in, in the States. That's a, a, a huge challenge for us to try to appreciate, reflect, uh, understand, or somehow revere and acknowledge Native perspectives, Indigenous perspectives on uh, environment, on landscape, on what have you. And Alan, there's also so broader implications to this is that, yes, we're looking no, at rock art through the lens of, of kinship and concentric ecologies. doesn't mean it's but, just restricted to rock art. This can also no. go on to things like stone artifacts and quarry exactly. sites. There's all yes. these other sort of what we call archaeological features. But all right. of these have this, this rich context to it that we need to be able to explore and to understand. And we do that through relationships. So we've started to do that with some of the stone artifacts from, from neighboring Mara countries to try and try and learn more about the the complex cultural story associated with these and you know that that's really exciting and it builds on this rock art material so we hope that we can sort of use these ideas to, to push archaeological research forward so as physicists and other other scientists begin to understand the universe uh, better and better and in different ways is there a coming together is there any sort of indication that some of the things that indigenous knowledge have discovered is now being uncovered or verified or supported by new ways of thinking in the, in the scientific community? Well, I, I think one of the biggest ones that we could relate to that is the whole idea of this notion of what is time. Okay. You know, Einstein said a long time ago that the way the West has constructed time is a nonsense. It doesn't exist like that. And when you work with, say, people like the Yanua people, 
this is exactly the same. Time is not what we think it is. Time is totally viewed in a very, very particular way where that which we in the West might say is a thousand years old, 2000, 3000 years old is actually always present in the now. And I think the notion of time is something that really comes up here where we could start to fit more closely with some of the new modern ways by the physicists and the astrophysicists when they start talking about what is this thing we call time. And I think that's one place where we could converge and have a conversation. Uh, and I actually think that the, the desire to, to lean more into an understanding and an appreciation of Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous understandings of the world is, is being taken up far more readily than ever before in, in the sciences, if we want to call the hard sciences per se. But, you know, I, I, I work with marine geoscientists who are in awe of Indigenous narratives and oral traditions that relate to changes in sea level and changes to sea country over time. And I do believe there is, you know, it, it's it's kind of reaching a point where uh, there's no longer any need for a hierarchy around ways of knowing, that these are all just principled bodies of understanding that can be in relationship. It's, it's the idea of plurality that we need to get our head around. The centre is not going to hold much longer if we look at the, the crises and the prevailing pressures and tensions happening to our environment and even just across cultures, that the idea that a, a Western way of understanding the world is the centre and that that will hold, I think, is perhaps foolish because more and more there needs to be a vision of plurality in terms of how we start to address the the, the issues that are, are prevailingly challenging and pressing upon humanity. And, and I actually think there is, I would say over the course of my career, at, the mo at this present moment, there's more interest than ever before. And I think it's a very exciting time to be seeing interdisciplinary and intercultural kind of approaches to human challenges. John and Liam, is there a takeaway from all of this that you want to share? I'll just leave you with one, one of the constants that I've been told over my last 40 years that I know Amanda was told, I know that Liam was told, is the only way you will learn properly in a community such as the annual community is to listen, is to have your ears opened. And that's a direct translation from Yanua. And it literally means that if you listen, you will grow in intelligence. And I guess just a final word for me then is that is that this is a challenging, a challenging way of, of, of looking at, at archaeology, looking at the archaeological record. Everything that you've studied, everything that you've learned in your first year archaeology classes or your honours thesis or your PhD, it's amazing how quickly it can get turned on its head. And for me, that's probably one of the most important things that I've learned from this project. And I'm still learning today as I continue working in the Gulf on, on other archaeological projects. And it's just it just adds such an important dimension to the way that we that we know about Indigenous cultural heritage. So it's been, I've been very fortunate to have been able to learn. It's been a fabulous hour, and I'm honoured and blessed to have uh, interacted with my Australian colleagues. Thank you, Thanks, Alan. Alan. Thank you, Alan. See you in the flip-flop, gang, and thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.